on COVID-19 infections. They're not counting if our people are getting sick. We know they are, and we know that there have been many deaths in the urban spaces, but we have no sense of the scale. That's Jocelyn Formsma, Executive Director of the National Association of Friendship Centers. She's our guest on this episode of the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. Akamemuk is Cree for You All Persevere. In other words, keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we will discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, elders, and community leaders. Right now, the leading issue is the COVID-19 pandemic and what can and is being done to minimize its impact on First Nations people and in First Nations territories. There's no doubt and there's little question that coronavirus is hitting First Nations peoples in the reserves, but also in urban areas. And we know that on reserve, there's living conditions of overcrowded housing, there's lack of access to water, and this affects our people in the urban centers as well. And so our guest today understands that issue perhaps better than anyone. Jocelyn Formsma is Executive Director of the National Association of Friendship Centers. Her organization represents 107 local member friendship centers and provincial territorial associations. And they offer programs and services to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples living in cities. Welcome to the podcast, Jocelyn. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So we know mm-hmm. well, there's 634 First Nations in Canada, you know, over a million people. But half of those people live off reserve. And I got to be careful on our terminology because in the Yukon and Northwest Territories, they don't have reserves, right? So, but just for ease sakes, we'll, we'll use that term off reserve. Uh, so half of our people live off reserve and in cities. So given those large numbers, what do we know about the impact of COVID-19 amongst First Nations people living in urban centers, urban areas? Well, there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll break down. I think the biggest thing is um, the ability for First Nations living in urban centers to be seen. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about about our people living in urban spaces because people think there's a reserve somewhere over there and then they're living in town or living in the city. It, yes, and it can be many other situations. So, you know, we have many situations where the reserve is right beside the town So um, they're, or very close to. So people may be living uh, full-time on reserve, but they're working off reserve. They're accessing services off reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, we have situations where... Um, our people are living in rural and remote uh, northern communities, um, and they have to travel vast distances for school, for medical uh, assistance, um, for safety sometimes. Um, so there's so many reasons why our people are living in uh, urban spaces. And when I say urban, um, I don't just mean the big cities. You know, I, I, I'm also talking about the towns, the the mid-sized towns, the small towns, the the small cities as mm-hmm. well. So the ability for people to be seen um, and understood as as in that space, um, I think as we've seen in other situations, that the the second piece is that jurisdictional gap, um, and we don't see 
any level of government really fully accept, accepting responsibility for funding and providing services uh, for urban uh, First Nations. Federal governments seem to see uh, if you're living in urban spaces that the provincial and territorial government should be stepping in. And the provinces, provinces largely still believe that uh, if you're Indigenous and you know, you're living in the urban settings, it doesn't matter, you're still under that federal jurisdiction. So, so we end up seeing that gap for people, even though they have the rights um, and they should be fully covered by both governments. Yeah, it's that whole idea of, uh, like you, you talked about the push factors, why are people leave the reserves, right? There's not enough jobs on the reserve, there's not enough homes on the reserve, they leave for education and training. Um, there's other reasons, so they, and they go to the urban centers or, or off reserve in the small towns as well. And, and so, and you mentioned the whole issue about rights, you know, and then the conflict between who's responsible, the federal government, provincial governments, they're still gray on that. And, uh, and we always say, and of course, First Nations say that uh, we look after our people both on and off reserve, but in a lot of cases, the reserves don't get funding for their total membership in a lot of programs and services. So we have a lot of work to do on that, no question. And so with this issue of COVID-19 and when our people are in the urban centers, um, people infected with COVID-19 a lot of times, um, are you seeing a lot of uh, reporting? How do we get statistics or numbers on uh, First Nations in cities? Is it reported accurately? Is it overreported? Is it underreported? Do you have any experience at all that you might be able to share with our listeners on that piece? It is vastly underreported. It is not being counted by the provinces. There's no disaggregated data on COVID-19 infections. Um, so they're not counting if our people are getting sick. We know they are, and we know that there have been many deaths in the urban spaces, but we have no sense of the scale at this point because people just aren't collecting the information, hospitals, provinces. Um, so that's a big piece. Um, However, I would say that there are some regions that are just starting to address that. Yeah. For example, I know in Ontario, Chiefs of Ontario is working with uh, some partners on trying to track both on and off reserve uh, First Nations and, and working with the systems there. Um, and then we're we're looking at partnering uh, on a project as well uh, with Well Living House uh, and Dr. Janet Smiley to add that urban piece mm -hmm. uh, along with local and regional uh, organizations across the country so that we can at least start getting some numbers. It's it's a huge thing because if we don't know the scale of the issue, we can't properly address it. And and we're going to need many hands to, to, uh, to help with this. It's not just the tracking the infection uh, or tracking the, the deaths from COVID-19. Um, it's the other pieces that come along with it. It's um, it's caring for the families, you know, that holistic uh, view of, of caring. So you need to do some tracking. Who have you been in touch with? Uh, who have you been visiting with? Um, and then it's the aftercare piece, too, to make sure that um, our people don't get reinfected. So mm -hmm. um, those are going to take many hands to make sure that, that our people are, are safe and stay safe uh, in the urban spaces. No, that's a really good point. And, and so the numbers that are currently being reported by the different uh, regions and, and provinces and territories from the chief medical officers, definitely we can say is not really complete and there's a piece missing. So we need good information, good statistics, uh, because right now there is an underreporting on, on First Nations in particular. Um, so it could even be higher. So when people say that... Mm -hmm. uh, the, the curve has flattened out. It may not be the case because there's a lot of homeless people. There's a lot of people that are in shelters. And, and yeah. where are those people going? 
And so we need proper information. And then uh, we were talking to different officials as well the other day. And it and it's a, there's a challenge because we need to start um, uh, because there's confidentiality and, and human rights when you, you can't just say, are you status or not? So there, it's almost like a voluntary self-declaration has to be imposed or accepted, right? So that way we get good information. And that's one of the options going forward that we can look at. So we do get good information mm-hmm. stats and start tracking uh, uh, the, the, the needs in the urban centers. So that's a, a good piece on that. Um, I was going to say now with the French, what are some of the biggest challenges like you talked about not being seen um not being recognized some of the challenges for first nations peoples and cities uh when it comes to ovid in terms of access to ppe you know the personal protective equipment or or are they being tested adequately or food security like there's so many what do you think from your perspective so what we've been hearing from the ground is um is a few things um so friendship centers uh, even before the pandemic had been responding to, you know, our people's emergencies and have been stepping up in times of times of need and in times of, of calm um, to be there for uh, for our people in, in the urban spaces. Um, what I think is really important, a, a key piece that the Friendship Centers are offering is that holistic wraparound community support. Uh, so we are hearing of First Nations that are, are supporting their off-reserve members um, they're they're offering uh, financial assistance and checking in with what they need and trying to get uh, their people what they need. Um, but the friendship centers are the ones that are able to um, to provide a bit more of that holistic support. So I'll give you an example. I was talking to an executive director in Quebec, and her staff had gone to someone's house, a family's house, and they dropped off the food and checked in with the family, see how things were going. And by talking to them, they found out that that family stove had actually broke down. And so they actually went online and they found a stove for that family and then arranged for it to be delivered to their house and made sure it was installed. So that family not only just had the food available, but they also had a way to to cook it. And that's something that nobody might have known unless they actually went to that house and talked to that family and found out that there was that need we know that friendship centers have been collecting traditional medicines, uh, sweet grass and cedar, and putting that into food bundles that they're delivering to the homes. We've had some friendship centers actually cooking some homemade sauces and homemade meals, and just putting that love and care, you know, and, and making sure that we're not just giving you canned food, like, yes, it's going to feed you and nourish you, but here's some fresh food made by hand to let you know somebody is thinking about you and somebody cares about you and that we've made this for you. We've heard examples like that all over the place. We've had um, some of our Friendship Center staff just going above and beyond, responding to an increase in domestic violence calls, uh, trying to uh, have some additional cultural supports for for young people who are in care, who may be in a non-Indigenous foster home. Just that for them, maybe the the Friendship Center was their, their cultural connection. And if the services aren't being able to provide in person, just that additional outreach by video phone or something and somebody checking in to say, you know, how are you doing? So these are these are the kinds of additional wraparound mm-hmm. supports that, that Friendship Centers are providing. The biggest needs that we've been hearing are certainly food and supplies. Um, they're delivering that on a daily basis, hundreds of thousands of meals being provided by Friendship Centers that um, they're not currently getting any funding to, to provide um, or have been able to find some local partnerships. 
cleaning supplies, sanitation, keeping the areas that are open to the public uh, sanitized, uh, making sure that people have uh, cleaning supplies and sanitation supplies in their homes. They are needing technology, so cell phones, tablets, laptops, so that it's uh, if they're not providing services inside the Friendship Centre, um, that they're still able to provide them virtually and uh, online. And then also lending those out to community members so that they have a, a way to get in touch with, with folks, like, you know, to the elderly, to uh, so that they can keep in touch with their family or they can check in with uh, the workers at the Friendship Centre. Um, uh, so those are the kinds of needs uh, in the... Connectivity, you know, I know connectivity is an issue in First Nations on reserve. It's also an issue uh, off reserve, like some of our people uh, don't have appropriate internet packages, so they're running out of, they're hitting their limit um, or data um, for their phones. Like if they're not able to connect with people, then it just makes it that much more challenging to get what they need. That's a good point. And uh, the holistic and wraparound services and support that friendship centers do to First Nations people living in the cities is very key from the traditional medicines uh, to the foods. Oh, uh, that, that's so important, like providing the services and programs support in, in, a, in a, I'll call it culturally relevant, I guess, atmosphere or mm-hmm. our way of doing it. So there's a connection. Uh, food and supplies, cleaning supplies. And so we mentioned earlier on that some reserves are helping with their officer band members, First Nations members, by providing some financial support, which is good. But the friendship centers are there and they go above and beyond that as well, like through just what you just talked about, the holistic wraparound services. And I remember at one time there was a, an, an MOU between the AFN, Assembly First Nations, and friendship centers as, as well, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's something because the next question I'm going to ask is how are, how are First Nations uh, governments working with in partnership with friendship centers and other human services agencies to help meet the needs in urban centers because again we've got uh, the people kind of comment well some of the biggest reserves in Canada are high numbers are like in Winnipeg and in Toronto and Vancouver um, so those people First Nations there they they need the services they don't they don't really care who provides it whether it's their band or friendship centers or other PTOs mm-hmm. or other organizations so from your perspective how how is that working? How are we working in partnership or, uh, with friendship centers and other agencies to help meet the needs in, cent- in, in urban centers? Well, I'll, I'll be very honest. Uh, there's mm-hmm. uh, situations where the relationship is very good and it's very strong and there's a lot of support. They're working together. The First Nations governments are making sure that the friendship centers have what they need and are getting that support. And there's some places where, um, you know, friendship centers are getting some flack, they're getting some pushback, they're getting some criticism from the First Nations governments. I see it as we're all trying to do our utmost. We're all trying to do our best to make sure our people are, are safe and are served in this space. So that's the place that I'm assuming it's coming from. You know, at the friendship centers, these are people that have been there and have been doing their best as well and trying really hard to serve big populations without the resources um, that people think that we've we've gotten a lot of money and you know we just got the funds today um, just under four million dollars for all of the friendship centers in mm-hmm. Canada so that you know will translate to just less than forty thousand dollars per friendship center and that money has already been spent and, and then some so I think what I would say is in these times it's really important for us to coordinate the few resources that we all have, um, 
You know, we know that the money was never enough to begin with. And the way that it's been set up, we we don't want to be seen as competing with our own people. Um, and yeah. instead, you know, I think what I would call for is us coming together, understanding that we are all trying to do our best and working together to make sure that our people are are served and are safe and um, that uh that we we try to repair those relationships now is the time for us to come together as opposed to pointing fingers at each other or you know making assumptions mm. so i you know i would say like generally the relationship is good but there are some areas where we do need to work on that relationship and and um try to find a way to come together in these times exactly and that's a reason uh, as national chief of the AFN and president of the friendship centers, we invited each other to work together on this podcast. That's a good example of trying to meet the needs. It's, it's this, this COVID-19 pandemic is, is making everybody think and realize and assess that we're all, we're all people mm -hmm. and we're all human beings. And we, we really need to rely on each other to get through this together uh, as, as first nations people, as, as, as Métis people, as Inuit people, as, as, as people, as Canadians. And, uh, and um, that's something that we can always put at the forefront. We got to meet those needs. Um, so the need to plan, to coordinate, to communicate, collaborate, mm -hmm. all those things, all the different organizations to make sure that nobody is left behind. And uh, that's what we're all trying to do together here, uh, making sure that uh, in our people in the urban centers, uh, I really like that holistic wraparound piece that you talked about mm -hmm. that the friendship centers do. You know, because uh, if my Coco Marmushum was in, in Regina or Saskatoon, it would make me feel good to know that they have access to to to, to traditional foods mm -hmm. and medicines in, in a good way. And that there, there's somebody looking after their needs because it's our elders that are most vulnerable. And uh, and uh, so that's a positive thing. So I just wanted to lift you up and, and uh, acknowledge you for that, the work that you're doing there. And it shows the need that we've got to really work together because governments have a responsibility here, mm -hmm. all levels of government, federal government, provincial governments, municipal governments, and even First Nations governments about working together to make sure needs are met. And I've always talked about it like this way in the sense of um, portability of services and programs, portability of rights, all those things. And uh, a lot of the chiefs will say, well, we look after our people on reserve and off reserve. Uh, yes. Uh, but we want to make sure that that's done holistically mm -hmm. and make sure that nobody falls through the cracks. And so that's why the need to keep working together. So I really appreciate those. That's comments. a really good point because what I think we've been trying to say, we tend to like create this category of urban, like all of a sudden, like, mm -hmm. you know, I'll take, like, I'll just speak personally, right? My ancestors signed treaty number nine and I'm a member of Moose Creek First Nation. And it's, it's kind of funny that all of a sudden, just because I live in an urban space that I get categorized as urban. I was like, well, mm -hmm. yes, I'm, I live in a city, but I'm pretty sure I still have treaty rights. And that's the piece of, of it that we're trying to get across is like friendship centers. We're not a, a non-indigenous mainstream organization. Like we are first nations people, you know, and Métis and Inuit, but we are first nations people helping other people. And we respect the the role of uh, First Nations governments. Um, and we're trying to say, you know, you don't have to do it all yourself. You don't have to, because mm -hmm. any society in the world cannot exist without a strong civil society, you know, without those, those nonprofits, without those volunteer-driven organizations, just helping other people. And that's what Friendship Centers are. We're, we are First Nations, Indigenous people, helping our own people. And 
we're doing it outside of the, the political landscape. We're doing it because we see the need and we want to help our people. And it, to me, it's not fair for all of that burden to be put on First Nations governments. You know, like for my own community, for Moose Cree First Nation, to be trying to think about everybody that's in the community and then also think about what do I need in Ottawa. Um, I don't think that's fair to, to put on that much pressure on our governments. Um, but to mm -hmm. give some relief to them to say, you know what, we're here. We will help our people that are here. And if, you know, there's a Moose Cree citizen in Regina or in Edmonton or Vancouver, that there's an organization there too that will help our people. And that's, you know, the mobility piece, like we are all over the place. I couldn't imagine being chief in council, being a government, um, trying mm -hmm. to take care of all the people regardless of where they are. Like that seems to me like a huge burden. And I know that they will continue to represent those people and bring those voices forward. Absolutely. Um, but the service piece, um, there should be some peace of mind that there is an Indigenous organization that is there for our own people, that is driven by our own people, that understands that community so well, and that we're looking out for our own, uh, regardless of where they're living. That's a good point. I think uh, just on that piece, you're a member of Muscree. I'm a member of Little Black Bear. I'm Treaty 4. You're Treaty 9. Our rights are portable. You know, and that's a message to governments, uh, all levels, that our rights should be portable. Services and programs should be portable. And a lot of First Nations are, are starting to look at urban service delivery centers in some closer cities. Like I can think of uh, Kawasis First Nation back in Regina, Saskatchewan. They have an uh, Kawasis Urban Service Delivery Center. You know, but to me, again, it's yes, that's good. But there's still the need to work together mm -hmm. and uh, coordinate the resources, both human and financial, so that nobody falls through the cracks. So that's a very good point. And I think that's the message to governments mm -hmm. about coordination, collaboration, but working in partnership so that uh, all needs are met. And when we start talking about the uh, COVID again, in terms of the uh, preventing the spread of COVID-19 amongst uh, our people living in the centers, what do you think is the biggest priority going forward in terms of we talked about how we have to be seen, proper tracking, proper statistics, mm -hmm. um, some of the other, you know, making sure that their food security needs are met, uh, the wraparound services, access to supplies. Is there, is there anything else in terms of the biggest priority in terms of preventing the spread of COVID-19 amongst First Nations people in cities? It is not clear to me what the plan is. The funding's been announced. Uh, the you know different groups are getting funding, um, but I don't see the coordinated plan to actually stop the spread of the virus, to help those that have been sick with the virus, and to prevent any reinfection. You know there it doesn't seem like uh, there's a connection between. I think they're just assuming that the healthcare system's gonna gonna do that, but the healthcare system isn't seeing our people either like they're they're treating people as it's as they're coming to them um and then they're you know okay you're done you know good luck uh we wish you the best but then we don't know what happens afterwards right so what i would call for what i would really like to see yep. is us have a coordinated plan so that we can think about the prevention piece how do we prevent people from getting the virus in the first place? And that's going to include uh, ensuring our people have access to isolation spaces, proper housing. You know, if we have to put people in hotels for now, um, those are the kinds of things we need to be thinking about. And then for those who are ill, 
How do we keep them from spreading it to others if they're in the same house? Again, like creating the spaces, the community care about it. Like, you know, even if we can't touch one another and even if you're, you're ill, there are still some things that we can do, um, you know, it's still appropriate to, even if that person is isolated in a house, we can still smudge, we can still pray, we can still make sure that, you know, they have what they need. And for those who are recovering, just making sure that we we prevent that reinfection, because we know this virus doesn't have, the antibodies don't seem to last very long. So people can get reinfected again fairly quickly. And I think people need to know that. So I, I just need to see the plan, because um, I know friendship centers have been doing the best that they can responding to those immediate needs, those supportive needs. Um, but it's it's not uh, part of a larger coordinated process to uh, amongst, you know, Indigenous governments and, and uh, with, you know, provincial and federal governments. Like, it seems like everybody's kind of doing their piece and the, the links in between is, is very... Uh, very tenuous and that's a really hard message um, to share sometimes because it looks the way that it's been set up now it looks like any funding that we're trying to advocate for is like in comparison or at the expense of First Nations and that's not the message that we want to send we're trying to say yes mm -hmm. absolutely do everything you can for rural remote fly-in communities do everything you can to stop the spread on reserve like yes absolutely and there's this urban indigenous community that has its own unique needs the strategies are not going to be the same uh, and so they need the unique responses just like a rural remote community needs unique responses just like a first nation that's adjacent to a large metropolitan area needs uh, unique responses i think the segregation um, of our own people within this and it comes out in the funding um, is is what's really really challenged me is how do I advocate without trying to, you know, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. We all, we know the needs are there. We, we all need to work together for this, but I'm just trying to amplify these voices of, of this community to say like, we have needs that are very unique and so far nobody else has been stepped to fill that void. So, so yeah, we, we need a really comprehensive plan. That's a good message. Like nobody's in competition these are needs and they should be looked after the healthcare needs. And that's one of the messages going forward to all levels of government that it's healthcare needs. Mm -hmm. So needs should be met, whether you're on reserve or off reserve. And that's one of the messages from AFN we pushed and, and we got commitments from the prime minister and the ministers mm -hmm. that these are the words they use are scalable. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the monies are scalable, which should be to me are, should, which should be increased as the needs have been identified, as they, as you show are shown very clearly, there's needs, mm -hmm. they need to be met. And so that's a good message going forward needs. And, I, and I'm hearing very clearly as well, the full involvement in the inclusion in designing a pandemic plan. Like when you say, where's the plan? There's not a comprehensive plan. We need to get our people involved, not only on reserve with the chiefs and councils, but off reserve as well in urban centers mm -hmm. to get involved in the pandemic plan so that we're not put to the side and forgotten. And uh, you're right. Our needs are unique. So we're going to keep pushing forward with that. No question. Um, in terms of the, the messaging as well, we, we always talk about physical distancing, uh, washing your hands constantly, self-isolating. Those are always the messages going forward from uh, uh, the, the health professionals. And, and we're going to echo that. Uh, coming near the end of our, of our dialogue here, Jocelyn, in terms of uh, is there anything that you want to say to governments or people 
listening to this podcast uh, as we go forward in terms of trying to deal with COVID-19 in the urban centers for First Nations people that you'd want to share? What we're hearing is the needs are great and the resources have not matched the, the need. Our friendship centers are over capacity. They're not even at capacity. There's been a falsehood that the friendship centers, some of them are closed. I don't know of any friendship center that's not providing services. If the doors are closed, it's for the safety of the community and the staff, but they're still answering calls. They're still doing referrals. They're still um, offering programs and services. They're still delivering food. And the First Nations living in the urban centers are really trying to express what those needs are. And so we need to create those channels to be able to hear what's happening on the ground. We've been offering that at the National Association. We've been offering that um, to say that we can help in this piece. There are other, you know, uh, smaller community uh, organizations that don't have that national voice. Um, But we need to create as many channels as possible right now to be able to hear what's happening on the ground. Um, And we can offer that in within the friendship center space and we have offered and will continue to offer that um, and as you know dr janet smiley said you know COVID 19 doesn't know what the indian act is so it's it's not discriminating uh, based on those lines um, so our responses have to be uh, cohesive and and very uh, coordinated that's a good point. COVID-19 doesn't know what the Indian Act is <laughs> and uh, COVID-19 doesn't know what treaties are or rights are, right? It just it cuts across everything. And yeah. so, again, that just reemphasizes the point about how all organizations, all people need to work together, all levels of government need to work together to, to combat COVID-19, to, to stop the spread. And some people have said, we're never going to get rid of COVID-19. It's how we deal with it. It's, it's a virus that's not going away, but we need to focus on, on the... On the um, the, the, the vaccine that's needed mm-hmm. and we have to continue to socialize all those things to stop its spread. But the message we're getting very clearly is working together with First Nations, friendship centers like Observe, tribal councils, different NGOs, different associations in the different cities about working together and coordinating and, and uh, not competing, mm-hmm. but working together. But the message to governments is clear. Needs have to be met on reserve, but off reserve in urban centers as well. And the dollars and resources and the plan should should be all centered around meeting those fundamental needs. And uh, that's that's the message going forward. And I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, Jocelyn, uh, from the Friendship Centers. Uh, and we know we're always guided by our seven teachings. Our elders always say, you know, there's always truth and honesty and love, respect, courage, wisdom, humility. And uh, everybody needs those teachings now more than ever. And there's going to be tough days ahead, but there will be bright days ahead. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to do this together. So thank you so much thank you. for coming on. Friends and relatives and everybody listening, that was Jocelyn Formsma, the Executive Director of the National Association of Friendship Centers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Akamemic Podcast. If you enjoyed it, Please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. I also want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers for providing the theme music for our podcast. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>